Let's just take a moment and pray. Lord, we thank you this morning, and we praise you as we come to your scriptures. We, we pray, come Holy Spirit, come, come Lord, and fill this place. Come Lord, and fill our hearts and our minds. Come Lord, and lead us to Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I remember one day when my first child, Anna, was a baby. I can remember she probably wasn't much bigger than that baby over there. And I put her in front of a big mirror, and she didn't realize initially that she was looking at a reflection of herself. And she stared, and she stared, and she stared, and then she smiled, and the reflection smiled back, which made her smile even more. It was clear that she thought she was looking at another baby. And she put up one hand, and so did the reflection, and that made her giggle. She put up two hands, and so did the reflection, and that made her laugh. And she was pretty hysterical about the whole thing, and just enjoying it completely. And it wasn't until she noticed her father in the reflection with her that I think it began to dawn on her that she was actually seeing herself. As we come to this gospel lesson today, very famous gospel lesson, Jesus is speaking to an odd assortment of both non-religious and religious people. Right? There are failures and nobodies who can't get enough of him. And there are successful and sanctified people who are absolutely mortified by him. It says this, and this isn't in your scripture sheet that you received or on the screen. This is the context at the beginning of Luke 15. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus is hoping that people will hear him. And he is telling a series of stories. In effect, he's holding up a mirror through these three stories, and especially the one we're going to look at today, with the intention that both they and we might look into the story and go, hey, wait a minute, that's me. But he doesn't want us just to see ourselves. He also wants us to see the Father. You need to understand that Jesus wanted them, and Jesus wants you and me, to see our lostness, but also to see the lavish love of the Father. And so this is a story of lostness and love. Everybody say, lostness and love. Lostness and love. That's the mirror that Jesus is holding up for us today. And as I said, this is one of the, probably the most well-known of all of Jesus's parables Dickens said it was the greatest short story that has ever been told, and it's generally been called the parable of the prodigal son because so much of the action focuses on that younger son whose lostness is very evident because of his rebelliousness. Everybody say, he's a rebel. He's a rebel. Oh, say it like you're from the South. <laughs> he's a rebel. All right. right. His lostness is really easy to see. Verse 12, he demands, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. 
He wants his inheritance prematurely, which means that he basically wants his father dead. It's like he's saying, I'm tired of living under the rules of this family. I'm tired of living with you. I just assumed you were dead. Give me my stuff, and I'm out of here. Verse 13, we're told, so he gathered all that he had, like the father divided it. He gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Everybody say squander. That's why he's called the prodigal, because he's wasteful. He squanders all that he has been given, and that's one of the definitions of the word prodigal, right? To squander, to waste. He blows it all on a wild lifestyle, but thankfully he bottoms out, right? He recognizes where he is, just how lost he is. He sees himself, and it says in verse 17, but when he came to himself, and I love that verse, when he came to himself, it's like the light bulb goes off. He, he comes to a moment of awareness, of enlightenment, of understanding. In the recovery world, we'd say he, he hit the bottom. He finally, finally hit the bottom. And that's when he comes fully awake. Not unlike the way I came fully awake this morning when the alarm went off way too early and I just whoa, bolt up right out of the bed. Anybody have that today? You woke up in natural ways. I got up really early. I probably was up as early as any of us. So, man, I, I just wanted it to stop. Make the sound stop. Finally and fully awake. And he's aware of how lost he is. Just how stuck his life has gotten. And how he's wandered into a far country. And, of course, that's when it comes up with the plan, right? I'm going to head back. I've got this strategy for earning my way back as a servant. The father sees him, comes out to him, running down the road. He doesn't want to have anything of it, really. He just restores him, flat-out restores him to relationship. Now, I can remember when my middle daughter, multiple children of mine are making the sermon today, when she was about four, she got so mad at the injustice of living in her father's house. <laughs> that she packed up her little pink backpack with her doll and a book. She was a big reader and a sippy cup full of juice and she headed out the front door. She was leaving her father's house. And that was a big deal in itself because the front yard was generally off limits unless you were with an adult. And she got to that great boundary of all boundaries, the street and proceeded right on out into the street and down the block, and she finally got to the corner, and that's when she stopped at the stop sign, and I think it was there that she sat down and had a big cry because she realized there were cars and street crossings, and she was definitely in a far country. Now, what she didn't realize at first was that I, her father, was trailing quietly along behind her. But when she came to her senses and turned to come home, there I was. And, and the look of, of dejection and fear turned into relief and joy as she ran into the waiting arms of her father and was restored as we went home together. Now that's not just a kind of cute parenting story. We need to recognize that all of us, in one way or another, have ended up in a far country. It's a place we've all gone. Now, some people have gone there with their whole being, their whole person, all of who they are, are in 
and for our country. Because it's possible for every part of you to be there. Like, I'm done with God. I'm done with church. I'm done with rules. I'm done with my marriage. I'm done with morality. You just name it and chuck it. I'm out of here and my whole being is leaving for a far country. Some of you may be there today. But there can also be specific parts of your life that are in the far country. Like areas where you've put up a no trespassing sign to God and where you've said, you need to stay out, talk to the hand, you don't get to come in here. So what might that look like? Well, it could be finances that are wildly out of control and debt that just keeps soaring. might be a hidden eating disorder or a compulsion. It might be an addiction that you keep carefully protected and shielded from everybody except maybe the people who are close to you, and even them, you're trying to keep away from it. The far country, if... Well, the far country could be what you're watching on your phone and what you're looking at in the late of night. You don't want anybody to know that you're seeing this stuff. Or it could be some place in your business where where you're using either unjust practices with your employees or maybe you, you've been, you know, not really breaking the law, but you're right up on the edge. It could be a place if you're a student where you're cheating because you're so desperate to get ahead, but you wouldn't want anybody else to see that. There's a lot of places in our lives that can become the far country. When you stop to think about it, the lostness of this younger son is maybe not quite as far away as we might think that it is. What about that older brother? We don't want to leave him out because he's a prominent character in the story. Verse 11 says there was a man who had two sons. So it's not just about the younger brother who's lost. It's also about the older brother who's lost, which is why this could very easily be called the parable of the prodigal Sons, plural, two brothers, both lost. And Jesus wanted his hearers, and I think us, to be sure that as he put up this mirror, we didn't avoid seeing the potential for older brotherness in us. Now, he does not look lost. He never leaves home. He's buttoned up. Maybe he even, like, like wears a coat and tie to church. Who knows? He hasn't lived a wild life. He hasn't been irresponsible like his little brother. But he's been equally wasteful. He's been equally wasteful because just like his brother, he has also squandered. Everybody say squandered. He squandered the relationship with the father that he is entitled to. Now think about his response. Right? When he finds out his brother's home, What's his heart like? There's no joy. No, it's the opposite. He's furious that that no good so-and-so has come back. And dad is throwing a party for him. I I think it feels a little bit like that. He's throwing a party for him. (laughs) Think about his response, though. Verse 28. But he became angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, 
These many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He's got no sense of the favor that's his by virtue of the fact that he's in relationship to the father. And that's why the father gently reminds him of his identity. Look at verse 31. The father said to him, Son, daughter, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Do you see how he's also a prodigal? How wasteful he is? How he has squandered the relationship, what has been given to him? And it's because he's got a hard heart. He believes he's spiritually superior to the brother, and he might actually think he's superior to the father as well. I mean, think about it. He's kept the rules. He's done everything right. He stayed in line. He has not crossed those external boundaries. But his heart is full of pride, and it's full of self-righteousness. He's got this miserly, angry, bitter attitude. Now, the greatest danger in the world, the greatest danger in the world is to be externally religious without having a change of heart on the inside. And Jesus says that. And Jesus said, like, to be that way is the same as being this beautiful tomb that looks glorious and all the lines are right and is beautiful, but on the inside, it's just full of dead men's bones. That's what religion without heart does to people. The older brother disdains the younger brother, and he's bitter toward his father. There's a bitterness there. And just like his brother, he's he's just biding his time until dad kicks it so he can get his stuff also. He's far away from the father as well, and just as much a prodigal as his brother. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, the bad son was lost in his badness, but the good son was lost in his goodness. And that's the challenge I think that Jesus understood because if you're like the older brother, you generally don't see yourself as a prodigal. You don't. You don't. So there's this character Jesus creates, right? He's hardworking and he's faithful. He's done the right things. He's trying to wake up the Pharisees of his day and he's trying to wake up the Pharisees of our day as well. Let's just just think. I think we need to dial in on this one today. I left a little bit of this out earlier, but I think I need to land on this today. Let's think about some of the characteristics of the older brother prodigals. I'm even getting a cheer on this one. They tend to focus on the externals. Right? They tend to be very aware of what's happening on this plane around them and less aware of what's happening on this plane with the Lord. They're critical. They're devastated when they discover their own failings. And they're really sharp and unyielding when they see other people's failings. They're hard to please, demanding, narrow, sharp words, not easily forgiving. 
picking at minor things and making them large, bitter and envious. They take offense and they separate themselves. And in the religious world, it, it kind of sounds like this. Well, that church is not fill in the blank. It's not liturgical enough. It's not charismatic enough. It's not Bible enough. It's not, and you just, you, you name it. And then they separate to go find a place that's a lot better, which they're going to be disappointed by also. There's a story about a man who walked into a doctor's office and said, Doc, I have this awful headache, and it just never leaves me. Can you just prescribe something for me to make it go away? And the doctor said, well, of course I can do that, but let me just, you know, let me just ask you a few questions first. Let me just check a few things out. Do you drink alcohol? And the man said, alcohol? Are you kidding? I never touch that filthy stuff. Well, do you smoke? Smoke? That's the most disgusting thing of all. Who could put that horrible stuff in their body? The doctor then leaned in. He said, look, I'm a little embarrassed to ask this, but you know how, you know, some guys are. Do you, do you run around at night? And the guy said, no, of course not. Will you take me to four? four? I'm no bum. I'm in bed at 10. I got to get up early. I got to work hard. Five, six, sometimes seven days a week. The doctor said, now tell me, that pain in your head, is it a sharp, shooting, throbbing pain? The man said, yes, that's it. It's a sharp, shooting, throbbing pain. And the doctor said, oh, that's easy. There's a, there's a simple fix for this. You just need to loosen your halo. <laughs> and when you sit with Jesus' parable for a little bit, you're probably going to see yourself in it if you're looking fully into the mirror. And you're going to probably recognize yourself in the younger brother or the older brother, or if you're like me, like I see parts of myself and parts of them both in me. And that's the point at which Jesus offers you and me a gift. Because what he wants us to see as we look into the mirror of God's word and we recognize ourselves. He wants us to recognize the gift that the Father is there also so that we might see who He is and respond to His lavish love. He wants us to see not only lostness, but He wants us to see God's immeasurable love. Now think about the Father. He takes on the shame of both of the sons. He bears the cost of each of their rebellions. And he is abundant in the way that he approaches them. And that's why a number of people, including Tim Keller and several others, have said this really ought to be called the parable of the prodigal God. Because God is lavish. The Father is lavish in his response. Now, remember, prodigal doesn't just mean like wasteful and squandering, it also means lavish and extravagance and unrestrained, abounding. I love the way Lloyd Ogilvie puts it. He says that Jesus is intentionally setting the negative prodigality of the sons against the creative prodigality of the Father because he wants us to see reality. For instance, verse 20 says this, while he, the younger brother, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That is lavish love. 
Verse 22 says, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That's lavish grace. Lavish love. Lavish grace. The father is constantly watching for the younger son. He's not getting any work done. Because he's so intent on watching the son. And then he runs to him through the town in the midst of the community. And the Middle Eastern scholar, Dr. Kenneth Bailey, points out in an Oriental culture, noblemen don't run. It is an incredibly shameful act. They don't do it. To do it is to bring upon himself the disdain of the community. It is a shameful act. Jesus' listeners would have expected the father to rebuke the son, which would be justice. In the book, The Man with Dirty Hands, Curtis Leans recounts an ancient Asian story of a man who had a wild, impetuous son. And this is what he writes. The boy became involved with the ruffians of the village who persuaded him to join them in a robbery of his own father's treasury house. After the robbery was over, his friends fled with the stolen treasure and left him to face the guilt of the crime alone. The young man was desperate. He was deserted by his friends, and he had betrayed the trust of his father. But his greatest crime was that he had brought public dishonor upon the family name. And in a culture where ancestors are revered and family integrity is a sacred trust, this is the worst wrong of all. So, he goes on, broken and repentant, the son went to his father and begged forgiveness. Graciously, it was granted. The father called all of the members of the family together to celebrate the reconciliation and return of his son when all had enjoyed the banquet to the fullest. The father stood and lifted his cup of rice wine for a toast. But as the son drank deeply the contents of his cup, he grabbed his throat and fell lifeless across the table. The son had been poisoned. The father, with ceremonial dignity, nodded to the guests. Each in turn graciously and politely bowed to the father as they silently left the banquet hall. All was now put right. The son had paid the price of his pardon with poison. His honor had been restored. The family integrity and honor were reestablished. The unfortunate incident was closed. That's the way Jesus' story should have gone. But instead, the father responds to his rebellious son with lavish love, costly, costly love, compassion, mercy, grace, and restoration. Verse 28 says, and, and this is the thing you need to see, he's got the same love for the older son. He, the older brother, was angry. He refused to go in, so his father came out and entreated him. He should not have gone to the younger son, but he should also not have gone to the older son. It's a public humiliation. It's a disgrace that the older son won't go into the party that the father is throwing for the family and the whole community. And the father going out to him is the same act 
It's the same thing as him running down the road to the other son. There's no difference, not in the eyes of the community. This is a shameful act. And what does he do when he gets to that older son? He doesn't rebuke him. It says he entreats him. He pleads with him. There's a vulnerability there, which is an indicator of love. Love is always vulnerable. Love can always be wounded. That's what vulnerability means. The father's trying to help the older son overcome his lostness. Verse 31, And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Do you see the lavishness? The prodigality? The costly love? It's all yours. It's all yours, son. He doesn't shun him. He says, you're my child. You're my child. You're my son. And the only question that's left, and Jesus is very intentional about this for his hearers and for us, is what will the older son do? How will the son respond? Will he recognize that he too is in a far country? Or will he stay outside of the father's house? And will he stay outside of the father's love? It's an amazing story of lostness and love. It's remarkable in its simplicity and its depth. The question is, how do we apply it today? And I would say this, if you see the mirror coming up and you recognize your own lostness, whether your own younger brother, younger sister prodigality or your older brother, older sister prodigality, if you hear the alarm bell ringing, get up, wake up, respond, engage. How? I will arise and go to my father. That's the response that he's looking for. You don't have to come up with an elaborate fix-it plan. You don't, you don't have to come up with some elaborate way to make things right, to balance the scales. And the reason is this. The Father has already run to you and to me. The Father has sent the true elder brother who has come from the far country into this one, the true home into this far country, and he has done everything right. He is the only one who has done everything right. He is the only one who truly is righteous and is just and is holy. And out of his costly love, he went to the cross. He took the sin of the younger brother and the sin of the older brother. He took yours and mine, and he bored himself. He bored upon himself. He took the shame. He took the punishment. Justice is done. And he offers back sonship, daughterhood, forgiveness, and mercy. So where are you running? Where are you hiding in a faraway country? Where are those closed off places that you're feeling the Spirit of God open today just a little bit? You're seeing them. You know them. Where is that? Because when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and raises the mirror to show you your lostness in your badness or your goodness, it's not with the intention of shaming you. It's with the intention of restoring you to the Father's heart. That's the gospel. 
That that's what God is after. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Respond to Him today. Let the wonder of costly love shake your world up in all the right kind of ways so you can simply rest in your belovedness. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for the cross, just like we sang. You were beaten. We go free. What a cost You paid, Lord. Lord, free us in every way we need to be freed. But most especially, Lord, let us rest in our identity as sons and daughters because our elder brother has purchased it for us. We thank you, Jesus, and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.